morning, everyone. Um, my name's Renee. I'm the founder of Foster Source. Thank you so much for coming and spending your Saturday morning with us today. This is a new panel for us, and we are really, really excited to have these panelists. This is a panel of parents in child welfare. So we have a foster parent, a kinship parent, a placement alumni, and a former uh, bio parent who was involved in, with the system. And they have been gracious enough to come and let us ask all sorts of vulnerable questions and to learn from them. So. We are very, very grateful. Um, many of you know we've been doing family-sized freezer meals for foster families throughout COVID. When we do these events, we you can also register for diapers, and we always give out a $50 gift card as well. These are no-contact drive-through pickups. Denver County, it's your turn. We are coming for you next Saturday, the 19th. Pickup is in Denver at Augustana Lutheran Church. A lot of you may know that as one of our uh, venues we use in person. One of my team members will be putting the um, link to register for that in the chat. Now, this is funded by CARES money, guys. So sometimes this gets a little tricky with the funding. For this Denver Meals event, in order to register, you need to be either a foster parent who resides in Denver County, a foster parent who fosters for Denver County, or a foster parent who has a Denver County case, or a kinship parent in Denver County. Um, Denver is including their kinship families, and we are super excited about that. Mary has just put the link in there to register. Please do. If your family is larger than six people, go ahead and register for two sets of meals. Um, and again, the pickup for that is next Saturday. You can pick up for someone else if they aren't able to come. They just need to also be registered. Um, our general in, uh, email is info at fostersource.org. If you have any questions about that, please let us know. You're going to want to take advantage of this opportunity. These meals are really good and they really come in handy those days when, you know, just those days. Um, we have a connections event coming up on December 15th. That's our version of a support group. Um, that's a weekday evening connections. And we do those for an hour, just a quick check-in. You do get a training certificate. I'm not sure yet that we'll have our Saturday connections in December. We usually have it the fourth Saturday of the month and this year that falls the day after Christmas. So I'm sure as much as we all will need a support group that morning, we'll probably still be assembling toys and finding batteries and things like that and probably not able to get, um, a connections class. So we'll stay in touch with that. But for now, there is one on the 15th. So check that out. Um, Mary's going to put the registration link for that in the chat as well. As you know, if you need anything, um, weighted items, car seats, mattresses, bunk beds, you can request that at any time from fostersource.org slash requests. If you need respite, fostersource.org slash respite. Um, our newest program is matching foster parents with a mental health therapist for virtual therapy. If you would like to be matched with a therapist, fostersource.org slash therapy is where you can request that. Um, for today's training and trainings we've done in the past, 
it will be recorded and later available for on-demand viewing. So if, if you know someone who didn't make it today and we did get some emails in advance saying, ah, I can't make it on Saturday, but will it be recorded? Yes, it's being recorded. It will be available on demand. For 2021, we are in the process right now of adding Spanish subtitles to all of our on-demand trainings. And in 2021, we will have some original Spanish language trainings. So we are super excited about that. All of our on-demand trainings are also available as podcasts, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, we do not give training hours for podcasts, but a lot of times people just like to listen again um, and get just that extra information soaked in. Um, and I'm going to do a little pause so it's easier for Lindsay to edit. Good morning and welcome to our Parents and Child Welfare panel. We are so excited to offer this to you today. We are in webinar format right now, so if you can see and hear us, you are good to go. Feel free to chat amongst yourselves and with us in the chat and submit any questions for the panel in the Q&A. We are thrilled to have four parents from with child welfare experience on our panel this morning. We have Lindsay Gilchrist, who is a foster parent. Wave, Lindsay, there she is. <laughs> we have Gail Engel, a kinship, longtime kin parent, expert in kin. Um, Makita Cotto, is that right, Makita? Cotto. Kodo, thank you. Makita Kodo is a placement alum of the system and she's gonna share her story with us. And then coming in here shortly will be Tony Miner who has experience as a bio parent um, in the system. And we are excited to hear from, from each of them. This is just gonna be an open forum chat. So let's take this time to really learn from this panel. I wanna thank the panel. This is a huge deal for us. We're so excited. And thank you to Team Foster Source, who does lots of behind the scenes running around so that Lindsay and I can look like we know what we're doing here on Saturday mornings. Um, I would love to start with the panelists each um, just introducing themselves, telling a little bit about their story, and we'll go from there. Thank you. Lindsay, do you want to start? Sure. Um, thanks so much for having us all on. I'm really excited about this. Um, my name is Lindsay Gilchrist, as Renee said. I am a foster and adoptive parent in Denver County. Um, my wife and I have three kids, um, ages five, three and a half, and three. And our two youngest we adopted um, about a year and a half ago from um, Denver County Child Welfare. And they are lovely and wonderful, all three of them. Um, we are continuing, <clears throat> excuse me, we are um, still certified as foster parents um, just on a hold at the moment, feeling a little bit overwhelmed with toddlers. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, hope to continue fostering um, and, and have remained certified and, and open for respite. Um, and then I also, in my professional capacity, um, yeah, I'm the director of the CHAMPS program that's through an initiative through Foster Source um, that works with pilot counties and then on the state level to um, uh, improve programming for fostering kin families so that when kids enter care that they're entering into a family-based family setting and a family-based setting that's well-equipped and ready to support those kids. Awesome, thank you, Lindsay. Gail, would you like to go next? Certainly, um, my name is Gail Engel. Um, I am a grandparent raising my grandson. 
Um, I am a non-certified kinship care provider, which we will probably talk about a little later, um, what exactly that means. Um, my grandson came to us when he was born. Him and his mom lived with us for a couple of years until um, we figured out that she just was not able to, I was enabling her basically, and I told her she needed to go out on her own. It was not successful, and my grandson wound up coming back to me, and eventually we adopted him. Um, he has fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, autism, and many other issues, which made it very challenging for mom to try and raise him and his sister as a single mom. Um, I also am the founder and executive director of Grand Family Coalition, which is an organization in Larimer County that supports grandparents and other kin raising kin. The majority of them, again, are non-certified kinship care providers. Um, I'm excited to be here because I, it's good for you to understand the difference between children being raised in child welfare system, foster families, and kinship families. It is very different. So thank you all for being here. Absolutely. And we are so excited to, to learn more. I did put Grand Family Coalition in the chat. Gail, is there a website or a Facebook page for that that I can share? I think she's going to put it in the chat for us. Awesome. Makita, would you like to go next? Sure. Um, good morning, and thank you guys so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, I'm Makita Koto, and I am a foster care alum. So I um, had my first experience with the system at age seven um, when my, my mom was a big drug dealer and a big drug user, and we had a no-knock grade on our house. Um, and I did have kin, but because the history surrounding drug use and alcoholism in my family, they refused to take us. Um, and so my brother and I ended up in foster care and I was in and out of foster care for probably a good seven, eight years. And then when I was 13, um, my caseworker came to school with a trash bag full of my stuff and told me it was time for me to move. And so I kind of bounced around from foster home to foster home between the age of like 13 and 18, and then I emancipated from foster care once I graduated from high school. Um, so like I've had experience on a lot of different levels with a lot of different things. Um, and for me, growing up in foster care in the 90s, foster parents were not my source of comfort. I found that in myself. So like super excited to talk to you all and share and answer questions about what my experience was like. Um, and since then, I have I was a teen mom. I have a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, and an eight-year-old. Um, I am a varsity basketball coach at DSST Conservatory Green High School. Um, I am a human resources manager for DSST Public Schools. And then as if I have en enough on my plate, I also uh, run my own real estate company and really have been working to help support some of the girls that I coach in learning like that entrepreneurship, um, as well as like, finding our, our way of navigating life through basketball that we love together. So, um, and then I also sit on the implementation team for the Families First um, Act that we, I'm still learning about and Gail and I have like had many, many discussions about <laughs> how much work we have to do. Um, but yeah, so that's a little bit about me. That's awesome. Was that in Colorado, Makita, where you grew up? Yes, I was born and raised okay. in Colorado. 
so many questions to come. So many questions. Tony, you made it in. Yay. Good morning. <laughs> and welcome to the panel. Thank you so much for being on the panel, Tony. Would you share a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank you for having me. And yes, you know, technology is not my thing. Apparently, I needed to change my browser in order to be able to get in correctly. Um, good morning, everyone. I am so honored to be here. And it's always such a joy to be able to do stuff with Gail and with Makita both. Um, I just admire both of them so much and the work that they do. So my name is Tony Miner, and I am a birth parent. And I am a parent that has been through many systems. I am in recovery from meth. And next month, I will celebrate 19 years of being clean. Um, I am also a um, kinship care provider for two of my grandchildren. They are 16 and 11, and I've had both of them since they were babies. And uh, I work for Jefferson County Human Services, and I also facilitate circle of parents and recovery groups. And really my purpose now is for me to give back. I feel like I took so much throughout my use and really didn't have the support that I needed. I didn't have somebody to walk alongside me and to help me find that light within myself that I so desperately needed. And I sit on the, the uh, family's first implementation team also with Makita and with Gail um, as, the fam as a family voice. And really, um, I'm excited about doing this panel today and really excited about you know, finding out more about what Foster Source does and to help get the word out and to really get the support that we need for parents so that we can save families. Fantastic. Thank you so much. We will definitely get into families first. Um, folks, like I said before, please submit any questions that you have through the Q&A. You do have the option to submit anonymously if you would like. I would like to start, if we could just shuffle through each of you again, with the question, what service do you think would have made the biggest difference for you in your role that you're representing today? What was, or services, let's put it that way. What was missing that could have helped you towards success sooner? I can go if that's okay. Um, I think that that's a great question. And I think I sit in this, having listened to Families First and been a part of a lot of advocacy, I did work for Arapahoe County as a paralegal with my GAL for five years. So I've gotten to see it from each different perspective. And each perspective tells me that we need a way, we have to find a path forward to help these um, youth become thriving adults. Um, and so I think about services that I lacked and in particular, just that day-to-day, -day, um, how to be a person, right? Like how to self-advocate for myself in a manner that's going to be heard by others. Um, I lacked some basic skills in terms of budgeting and saving money and what it meant to pay for bills. Like when you're in foster care, you've got Medicaid foster parents have to feed you. You always have a roof over your head. So th there's a sense of like shelter and that I had that when I jumped into the world, I was like, wow, this is not, this is not it. This is not what I'm used to. Um, I, I also think that just outside of once I emancipated that continued support, I didn't necessarily need a caseworker to like check in with me monthly, but also to say like how, you know, every couple months or something along those lines, how are you doing? What tools can we provide to you? Um, and what supports can we give to you without 
feeling like I was still a part of the system, but more or less like, as I will do for my kids when they leave, they can call me and ask me questions um, and I can support them. And so I think that that's definitely something that I lacked, um, especially as I aged out of the system. I mean, I feel like, Lindsay, tell me if you agree with this. I think a lot of times as foster parents, we don't realize how much we can and should be advocating for the child. A lot of times we feel like we're supposed to shut up and do what we're told, but really we are supposed to be the squeaky wheel for the child. Yeah, I, I, one of the things I was going to say was that, um, and this actually wasn't our experience in fostering, we had a great team around the kids, the kids and um, felt like we were part of that team. Um, but I hear so often from foster parents that that is one of one of the things that's really hard. I'm sure Gail probably, well, you weren't system involved, but I think the the like having a team around the kid and, and being able to work together with the support professionals, with with bio mom or dad or both, if that's, if that's possible. Um, I think that's really a key component to the success of a kid and um, to the success of reunification is having that ability to, to advocate for the child and to, to bounce ideas around how you support that kid um, in the process. And I can kind of lead into where I know Tony would like to add as well, but as my daughter was coming through the system, she had severe mental illness and there was no help for her. There was no support whatsoever for her to even think about getting help she needed so that she could be a better parent. So then when I took over um, out of necessity to make sure that they didn't go further into the system. There was no help for my grandson as a child who was potentially going to go into the foster system. There was no support for him. I struggled through the school system. I struggled um, through the mental health facilities. He wasn't even diagnosed until he was nine years old. So there was no support for the child either. So then when I went to child welfare services and said, would you help my daughter? Would you help my grandson? Would you help us? Well, the answer was, well, he's safe with you. So we can't help you. And that's where it started. Wow. Okay. Tony, what was missing for you? So for me, because I have so many different branches in my life, you know, that go so many different ways. When I got clean, I was pregnant with my youngest child who's now 18. And so when they came in and swarmed around me to help me, nobody helped my two teenage or my, my two daughters, one was 14 and the other one was eight. And because they were so busy and so worried about me and my pregnancy that they forgot about them. And so my girls did not get any of the help that they needed and that they should have gotten. And unfortunately, both of my girls grew up and turned out to be the old me. My middle daughter is doing very well, but my oldest daughter is currently in prison and she's serving an eight year sentence. Um, 
to me, I look at that and go too little, too late. You know, when she had her last child that I did not take custody of, I continued to tell everyone involved with her, she doesn't know what she doesn't know. We automatically assume that just because people have children that they know how to be a parent. My oldest daughter did not get the nurturing that she needed from me as a young child. So she did not know how to nurture her own children. And this is stuff that we should be supporting families with. And when parents and youth and families are coming in and saying, help us, we should be surrounding these families and supporting them in any way that we can. You know, and like Gail was saying, you know, when she's asking for help for her grandson, um, we unfortunately have to rise way, way up in order to meet the requirements to be able to get the help that we need in home. My grandson has been hospitalized multiple times on mental health holds. And um, it took for him to be hospitalized three different times within six weeks before they put intense in home for my family. There, no family should ever have to rise to that need. And I truly believe that had he gone into foster care, he would have blown out of so many foster homes. But because I'm his grandma and I'm not going to give up on him, and I know Gail can relate to that 100%, um, that is why he is still with me. But not to say that it's not hard. And, you know, as, as a parent, being in recovery and being um, a parent and an addict myself, sometimes some of that guilt comes along. You know, even though my grandson did not see any of that, but the guilt of what I did to his mother comes mm -hmm. along and sometimes makes it a lot harder to parent him. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's so helpful. There's a follow-up question for you, Tony. Going through kinship foster care and the termination of rights process alienates parents from their families, regardless of the goal of reunification. Are there programs to give these parents who are addicts someone to walk along with them besides their caseworker? So Colorado is really lacking these programs. Um, I am the one and only family support partner in Jefferson County. I know that Denver has the DPALs and I'm not real sure on how big they are. Um, last I heard they were just starting to get into the dependency and neglect courts. Um, peer support is vital in any state. And that is exactly what parents and youth need. We need, we need um, youth partners to walk alongside with the youth as well to be able to help support them. And you cannot give what these parents need unless you've experienced it, you know? And that is the first thing that comes out of parents' mouths is they tell me all the time that their caseworker is young and has not had any kids. And, and here this person is coming in and telling them how to be a parent. And these parents are like, they have no idea or talking to them about their addiction when they've never been addicted to anything in their life, you know, and all too often people who have not lived through these things, they don't understand that addiction truly is a disease and that it is something that, you know, we are going to have to fight for the rest of our lives. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I mean, we run into that on the foster parent side. The best caseworkers are always the caseworkers who have been foster parents yes. um, in the past. Um, 
this is a great question I would love for all of you to weigh in on. What do you think is the best choice for a child when the only safe kin option for a child is grandma? But grandma is heavily involved with mom, who is very unsafe and unstable. Similar to your experience, it sounds like, but with a grandma who isn't able to create the same boundaries for the child that you've been able to create. Foster parents love the child, support the grandma, and would be thrilled to adopt and keep a close, regular relationship with grandma, but keep the child safe from mom. I see head shake. This is why we need this panel, guys. Is this the best option? Is there something better? Please educate us. Well, I would love to educate you. <laughs> um, first of all, you need to know that there are 8 million children in the US that the grandparents are the head of household. Um, there are 2.7 million children being raised in households where grandparents are the caregivers and there is no parent in the house. For every child in the child welfare system, there are 20 more outside of the system. We need to understand that placing children with their biological families is really, really important because those children, um, I think that relative is really important to place them with family of origin, the lineage where they were born impacts them in the future for understanding themselves. Being able to know their family history is important. So if that grandparent isn't doing is still involved with the parent, good for her. Because you know what, they're keeping that lineage together. My daughter was so bad that she was drinking five or six drinks a day every day during her first trimester. Today, 13 years later, because she had my support, because I didn't give up on her, she's now raising her daughter by herself. She has not counted on me to pay her rent or anything else, she's doing it. She's doing what Tony was doing because she had family support. It wasn't just me, it was her sister, her aunts, her uncles. It was the family and this child knows his family. This child knows his lineage. And when he grows up, he's gonna know who his family was. Walk a foster parent, walk alongside those families. Teach grandma how not to enable their children. Teach grandma how it's important. She's not been educated on addiction. She's not been educated on how to support her daughter. Walk alongside of her and show her how so that that child maintains his lineage. Before anybody else, I, I want to say that I feel like there's a disconnect in the training of foster parents that automatically puts a, 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 a divide between the foster parent and the bio parent. I was terrified of our son's bio parents until we were trapped in a room together unplanned. And I... I, I, a lot of you have read about the, the moment for me when my wall dropped between me and my son's bio parent and we wept and held each other and finally saw, saw each other. And 
were vulnerable with each, with each other and realized that we weren't the enemy. She immediately felt like a niece to me. She was immediately endeared to me at that moment. That should have been from the beginning of the case, by the way. And it, it wasn't because we didn't have an icebreaker because we were told that, you know, stay away. Um, so I, I do feel like there's opportunity there in how we train our foster parents. Anyone else want to weigh in? I guess yeah, I add that from the very beginning, it's not just foster parents, it's also the biological grandparent and, and the biological parent. parent. Um, Department of Human Services has a way of putting a wedge between them and they never gain it back again. So it's, it's not just the foster parent and the parent, it's the same thing with the kinship family. Yeah, I, it's interesting to especially learn from Gail and Tony even um, because I have like zero contacts from my mom's side um, and even like dealing with Kim, that was not an option. But I think that that's a great question to ask. And I think about my own experience, like I told you all earlier, my, my grandparents and my mom did not get along. And so in my grandfather's head, I was destined to be my mom. I mean, up until my wedding day, Seven years ago, he wouldn't walk me down the aisle because he swore I was a drug addict who was never going to be better. Um, and so when I, my view of what that looks like is very different. And my mom always set up this perspective of like being combative. So my foster parents and my mom, my mom and one foster parent, they did get close, but they started using drugs together. Um, and so, but my grandparents did get relatively close to some of my foster parents as I got older. Um, but I think that what I would say is to your question, I think it's important to put that child in a place where they are safe and where they can learn to thrive. Um, as I think about how I've raised my kids and really trying to break that cycle, um, if you, if we can't come outside of that and bring that child outside of that, they will repeat that. And that's where, you know, that like push for prevention and that, that I think that that's key. And like Gail said, like that then can start to teach tools. It's amazing to me what you see once you're on the outside of your situation. If you're in it, you only see what you see, but the moment you can come step outside and say like, yeah, maybe I was enabling my my son or daughter to continue to do drugs or or do whatever it is. You know, maybe I didn't address their mental health issues. It's much easier to see that when you don't have a chaotic thirteen year old running around cussing you out, sneaking out the house. Um, and so I think that that is key. But I think um, with that, the reunification piece is where you because there is a lineage. I grew up in all white foster homes. I'm clearly not white. Um, and so I lost what it took me years to figure out how to maintain my own black hair. I didn't know how to do my own black hair. Um, and so that is also really important. And so I would push that with the thought that like, how do we build up that family, that kin family to get their child back home with them? I'd like to weigh on that a little bit as well. And I have, you know, a couple different perspectives because I did take custody of my first two grandkids. Um, and when I took them, I knew that I was who and what was best for them. And mind you, like I said, my granddaughter's 16 and my grandson's 11. Um, I am also a very protective grandparent. I'm a very protective parent with my grandkids. 
And um, that has been, uh, you know, some of the ways that people have looked at me, well, she couldn't protect her own kids because she's a drug addict. So how is she going to protect her grandkids without people thinking that people can change, you know, and looking at how far I've come. Um, I have put up very clear boundaries with my daughter. And I have also let people know that it is totally okay for me to love my daughter and still be able to protect my grandchildren. Um, my daughter, whenever she was using, when she was making bad choices, you know, she was not allowed to come around my grandchildren. And I've made it very clear to her and to both of my grandkids' dads that it is my job to protect them, even if that means that it's from their own parents. Now, when it came to my last grandchild, I knew that I was not who and what was best for my granddaughter. Um, at that time, and I'm still, I'm a single mom with three kids. And um, she had suffered such severe neglect. And at that time I was dealing with my grandson's own mental health. I knew that if I took on another child because they don't give the support to kin families that they do to foster parents. And I knew that me taking her could possibly put me over the edge and set me up for a relapse. And then what happens to the three kids that I have in my custody? I let her go into, into the foster system. She spent over 700 days in the system. And when she was finally adopted, I met the adoptive parents. They promised me that they would keep a relationship with us. And I'm gonna to try to get through this without crying. Um, which is why the caseworkers picked them. They said that they knew the importance of my youngest grandbaby having a relationship with her siblings. And um, they invited us to the adoption. And as soon as they adopted her, they cut off all contact with her. Um, every now and then I will be fortunate enough to get a picture of her. My two grandkids that I have, they don't understand <clears throat> why they can't know their sister. They don't understand why she can't be in their life. And I still email them. I will send them pictures of her siblings. Um, the, the last time I talked with the adoptive mom, she told me that she was doing me a service by keeping in contact with me and letting me have pictures of my grandbaby. Um, and I hope and pray, you know, I know that my grandbaby deserved to have a good life. She is in a two-parent home. She seemed to be very, very happy. Um, and she deserves that good chance at having a good full life with having two parents that love her very much. My concern is that when she gets older, because she knows that she's adopted and she comes and looks for us and we tell her that they would not let her see us, I worry about what that's going to do to her as an adult. Because I'm not going to lie to her and tell her that I didn't want to see her because we absolutely do. And I have all my emails and everything to back that up. Um, I think that it becomes very, I don't even know the word, um, it very complicated and very difficult when um, biological families do wanna still stay in contact when a child is adopted. Um, because I know that these parents have no idea of addiction or anything like that. And before they adopted my grandbaby, one of the questions they asked me is, say your daughter got everything together and she was doing really well. Would you let your grandkids see her? Absolutely, I would. And I think that that was what was the determining factor for them. 
and them letting me continue my relationship with my grand with my other granddaughter, even though I assured them that I would never go against their wishes and let her see her mother. This isn't about her mother right now. This is about the siblings. This is about her keeping that that connection with her siblings. And so, like I said, it tends to get very messy and very, very difficult when it comes to things like that. Um, I do not regret not taking her because I have to protect the kids that I have in my home and I have to protect my recovery. Um, because if I don't protect my recovery first and foremost, none of these kids that I have will have any of the things that they have. That's so helpful. Thank you. Yes, Lindsay, what has your experience been? Um, oh, I was just every time I hear that story, Tony, I, uh, my heart just sinks thinking about that lost connection. And I think the, I'm going to get teary now. <laughs> um, I think the Gail, the Gail and I, the first time we met, um, we realized that I realized how much I had in common with her, even though we were so came from such different perspectives. And we were talking about that connection to our kids in our homes, biological mother and Although Gail, obviously it's her daughter. I was saying what I don't, I'm, I want my kids to know their parents. I want them to have a relationship with them. And I, I don't know how to do it. How, how are you doing it? <laughs> and, you know, it was really helpful to talk with Gail about, and, and to Tony's point that it's complicated. And how do you, how do you keep kids safe? Like Makito is saying, but also absolutely make sure that that bond is there and that they can know their parents um and that they're their parents that you know i i'm not threatened by that and i feel very feel like it's so important so i loved that when gail and i talked and we could really relate on how do we how i was like help me how do you, how, how are you doing that and my youngest um son uh his mom is is in recovery um it's been very limited but she's doing well and we're very close to his grandparents, biological parents, grandparents, and we talk to them all the time. And um, so our hope is that that relationship can happen and and um, we'll figure out kind of a, you know, the best way possible to move forward in a, um, in a safe way. But I think that, um, I think all of this is, it. you realize how much we all kind of have in common, even though we're so coming at this system from very different perspectives. Um, and I think that that hearing, I hope that all the foster parents that are on this hearing from you guys, really, as, as Renee said, like that wall comes down and you realize that we're all trying to keep these kids safe. We all love these kids. And how do we, you know, how do we move forward? Um, I also wanted to just highlight one thing, Makita, that you said that I think would be really helpful to kind of continue that conversation if you're comfortable about um, being in, um, having all white foster parents um, as an African-American. And are there things that you, that would have been helpful? I mean, hair is like a perfect example, like other, other things that, because I, that is, this, that is the system, right? The majority of foster parents are white and the kids coming into care are not majority white. And so how do we ensure that those kids feel their, their ethnicity is honored and, and we make sure foster parents have implicit bias, bias training and all of those things. But so not to put you on the spot, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about that for the foster parents listening in. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, I don't mind sharing, like as, as we've talked, I, I think 
I love to say that my test was my testimony and I went through what I went through to like make it better for those that are coming behind me. Um, but when I think about, you know, it's different because my um, view about my foster parents, because my mom was like, those people don't care about you. And then I had the world's worst caseworker and the worst magistrate. I went into it like, I don't need you anyway. So I don't care if you want to learn or you don't want to learn. I'm not getting adopted. I'm not living here. I'm not. I'm just waiting to turn 18. Um, but when I think about it now, I think one thing that we talk about a lot too, just like on iTeam and things like that is about um, cultural responsiveness and cultural sensitivity. Um, I think that I grew up in a time where like colorblindness was okay. So we pretended we didn't see what the color of people's skin was. Therefore we didn't have to think about what it meant to touch them um, and appreciate their cultural backgrounds and their history. Um, we, the world has like transitioned a bit since then. And so, right, like it, at least since May, it, I am black, it is okay for me to be black and you will acknowledge I'm black and what that means for me. Um, and so that shift has kind of like really forced, I, I think many people like from the professionals to foster parents to really like take a step back and think about like the impact. Um, I think that there is, there's training that can be done. Um, but I, I always question like, how do you train someone to be culturally sensitive if it's not like who they are? Um, I, you know, I think that that's just a great question because I, there's a thousand things that we can do. It's, it's self-motivation, right? Like if I want to know that I'm gonna be working with children of color, what steps am I gonna take to make sure that I'm aware of what, what kind of cream to put in her hair or what kind of barber to take him to. Or, you know, I know that there's some other cultures where like they shave the, um, shave the head, shave the child's head bald at year one, because that's a cultural thing. Um, so I think it really falls more on that individual knowing that like, I have a child of color coming in my house. What do I need to know? But that's where like the kin comes in and the relationship with the parents come in. And so that like, whether it's on track for termination or it's on track for reunification, we're all working together to say, well, I still want to make sure that I'm respecting this for you because they're going to trickle that down to their kids. So I hope that helps a little bit. Makita, what is your relationship with your bio family now? Um, I have a very limited, so um, I don't know who my father is. Um, my mom, is, we have a we have a cordial relationship, meaning I answer when she calls. Um, after I emancipated from foster cares, my mom continued to use. Um, I actually talked to her yesterday. I'm pretty sure she's still using. Um, and, but I uh, like on the flip side enabled my mom. So when I emancipated from foster care, I was, she guilt tripped me into this, like uh, you owe me concept. So she lived with me. Um, for a good 10 years, I paid her bills, took care of her and have had my own issues with like relationships. And so I'm a single mom with three kids. And so took care of her, took care of them. Um, and eventually one day, like the emotional abuse that I sustained from her, I just like woke up one day and had enough. And so I cut her off, um, for years. And I think we just kind of reconnected in the last year, but it's very surface level. Um, I, and that's also to protect my kids. 
uh, so that they, I'm trying to break this cycle and I don't need them to see that. And to be frank, I would hate for my kids to feel about me the way that I feel about my mom. Um, I do have a younger brother who I also do not communicate with. Um, I haven't talked to him in seven years. Um, he, foster care was really hard for him. He was, um, like labeled like a super predator. So he would bounce from home to home and blow out of them. I would watch foster parents like restrain him. Um, just this so much as like a raise in his voice created all this chaos. So I actually didn't really grow up with him. My grandparents, um, my grandmother who was not by blood was my grandfather's wife. She actually used to work for Tennyson Center, which is like the most ironic thing to me. And they wouldn't take us to raise us or take care of us, but she would go get up every morning go to Tennyson Center and help these other kids go home um, and take care of them. But over time, her and I developed a really close relationship and I took care of her too up until the day she died about three years ago. We had, we, she's the one family member that I was able to like hash everything out with. Um, and so when she passed, it was, there was a sense of peace in terms of our relationship was good. Um, my grandfather, is, is very similar to my mom. I, he's got dementia and I took care of him as well. And so we had to put him into a um, assisted living facility because he started like accusing me of stealing and, and doing drugs and things like that. So, but I will say in the last like five years, I was on Facebook one day and decided that I was gonna look for the rest of my family. I knew that they were out there um, and I found them. And so I have a really close relationship with my cousins. So my mom, my mom and my uncles were all drug addicts. Um, they were all poor parents. And so we all had to kind of figure out how to do it on our own. So I have, I'm super, super close to my two older cousins. Um, they're like, we're having our first big family Christmas this year. I know COVID says don't, but I've never had that before. So super excited. Everybody's coming here. We rented a house and we're doing the thing. Um, but I, I found that like my relationship with my cousins is much better than my relationship with the older people in my family. It's ingrained in their head to like be who they are and I can't change that. So I just have to protect myself and the future of, for my three kids. And, you know, I, I, Nikita, I just love you. And I, it is difficult. I have a grandparent who um, is raising her grandson He's now 13 and he stands, I think about six foot one and he's only 13. Um, he has never seen his family other than his grandmother. Um, one day she finally took him to New York to see his cousins and uncles and aunts. And um, he, grandma reminds me, she came and told me he was so excited because he looked around the room and he says, grandma, these people are all tall like me. You know, that lineage is really important. Family is messy. Family is, it's cruddy. It's hard. And I can imagine as a foster parent coming into that cruddy mess. But they're still our family. They're still people that we want to be connected to. I can oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I can agree with that, Gail. I remember when I first saw my cousin, I was like, oh my gosh, there's someone that looks like me. You look like me. Wow. So I like, I understand that. Somebody said in the chat, you know, this, this connection with, with bio family is probably the most important message 
for foster families to learn today and probably one of the hardest ones for foster parents to grasp. And again, I think that has to do a lot with how we're pulled into our position. We're pulled in to save these poor children, right? So there's there's definitely a disconnect in, in how we're approaching these relationships. Um, someone also said, I think white people struggle with cultural sensitivity because we don't know our culture and we're not faced with bias every day in, in our life. I mean, we host an implicit bias class uh, for foster parents and I, it's a fantastic class, but it's frustrating for me when we have to start with does white privilege exist, <laughs> right? Like that should be the premise of the class. And that's where we usually start the class with, with that as a given. But I know sometimes we've lost people already there. Um, yeah, I just, this is so helpful to me as an adoptive parent and with, with a child who is seven and has been with us since he was 28 days old and still asks about his mom and dad almost every day. I miss them. I want it. Why can't I be with them? Um, it's not fair. Um, and Tony, if you, if you would just accept me for my ignorance and help me understand my fear is either an inconsistency in a relationship or further hurt for him if the relationship doesn't give him what he needs. Does, do you understand what I'm asking? Oh, absolutely. And I can tell you that um, my grandchildren's relationship with both of their parents has been very inconsistent but the one consistent thing that they've had has been me, which is what matters. Kids deserve to know their parents. Kids have the right to make their own judgment calls on their parents. And this is conversations that I have with people all the time. Um, you know, I will get so ticked off and frustrated with my daughter and with my grandchildren's dads and sometimes I have to catch myself because I will start being a little bit too vocal around them. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. This is not your problem. You do not need to hear what I'm saying. Um, I tell my daughter and both, both dads that I want nothing more on this earth than to share my grandchildren with them. I would love to be able to have a weekend to myself and know that my grandkids are with their parents and that they're safe and that they're being taken care of. Um, you know, it's unfortunate because my, my grandson's dad still has not really accepted the fact, and I've had him since he was five months old, but accepted the fact that I am his parent. Um, I am his grandparent, but I am his parent. I'm the one who's potty trained him, who taught him how to walk. I'm the one who wipes his tears when he has nightmares. Um, I'm the one who has done and gone through everything with him, which makes me his parent. And, um, you know, my, my, grand, my granddaughter calls me grandma. She's always called me grandma. My grandson calls me mom most of the time and introduces me to people as mom. Um, I think my daughter has finally started to understand that, that I'm like, a mom is someone who takes care of you, right? 
Um, I don't expect them to call me anything. I'm like, you guys can call me whatever, as long as it's nicer, as long as it's not by my name, because <laughs> I see that as disrespectful. It's going to be grandma or mom. Um, but it is hard and it's hard to go through those inconsistencies with these kids. But I also don't think that it's fair of us to make those choices for them. You know, um, and this is stuff that I have actually talked with their therapists about because I want to make sure that I am doing everything that I possibly can to raise healthy kids. And by allowing their parents to be in their life when they are healthy, I think helps them to grow and helps them grow more, more fully. That's yes, helpful. If I can also share, we've talked a little bit about trauma and my daughter, um, her father was a coke addict, my daughter. And I left him because I didn't want drugs in my family. Um, my second husband was an alcoholic and he committed suicide, left my daughter with a second father that dismissed her. She had severe trauma through the, her first five years of life, which many of these kids do. By the time she was 16, she was a mess trying to figure out who she was. She was raised by her parent, but she still was a mess. By the time she had her two children, she wanted to know who her father was. Now, she wasn't raised in a foster system, but she still wanted to know who her father was. So she searched him out, found out who he was, and guess what? He was still a coke addict. But she had to know for herself. I couldn't tell her. She had to know for herself. So my grandson, I swore I would never take that away from him. He, we were told because of his behavior problems due to his fetal alcohol, he probably would have been in five different foster homes by the time he was six. Why? Because nobody has the love for him like I do. Nobody's willing to understand where he came from. His behaviors were really bad and I had no support to help him. So a foster parent, I'm not sure would have dealt with him. I think he would have wound up in the juvenile justice system. Today, he knows his mom. His mom comes to see him all the time. I've had to set boundaries. I've had to set um, specific things. She said to me one time, well, you never make opportunity for me to see him. That's not my job. That's your job. You need to figure out how to make that relationship with him work. He calls me mom. He introduces me as mom, but he still calls me Nana. My grand other grandkids, they know they're my grandkids, but they also know that I'm raising my grandson and that he's my son. Family's messy. But the more we support our families, and let those children grow and know who their families are, it's important so they know who they are. That's huge. That's a light bulb for me. And I'm guessing for a lot of foster parents listening, I'm so grateful for this perspective this morning. Gail, would you talk to us please about certifying versus not certifying as a kinship parent and also the fact that what you mentioned earlier, that almost something detrimental has to happen before you can get some services. Yep. So 
like I said before, when my grandson, we knew my daughter was having trouble. She, I couldn't get her help. So um, I also have disability. So um, because of his issues, it was really difficult for me to, um, I had to quit my job in order to find out help for him. So I went to child welfare service and I said, what can you do to help me? Well, you need to open a case against your daughter in order for us to help you. I'm like, what? Um, I need the help. And they said, no, sorry. Many of the grandparents that I support um, will tell you that sometimes a case is open. And as some of you have mentioned that uh, we sit on the Family First Prevention Service Act. So the new rule is that if a family, if a, um, a grandparent is being considered for temporary placement, they have 30 days to decide if they wanna become a certified kinship care provider. When they become a certified kinship care provider, they receive a stipend to be a foster parent. They just happen to be related. Many times, depending on the county you're in, depending on the state you're in, um, they won't even tell you that you have that opportunity to become a certified foster parent. So then what happens if you decide to become a certified foster parent, the state regains custody of that child. As a grandparent, that's kind of disturbing to me. But if I'm gonna be financially supported and receive a stipend to be a foster parent for my child, uh, then maybe I'll do that. That's a choice that they make. If within that case, and that case opens, and the grandparent is not able to certify, whether it's not meeting the criteria, not having a, enough bedrooms, not having enough space, too many children, not enough income, whatever the case may be, if they can't certify or choose not to certify, they automatically give guardianship to the grandparent within the court system. Those guardians then leave the system and are no longer supported. What they receive, they are able to receive. If they do not receive social security for the child because of the death of the parent, if they do not receive child support from the parent, which most likely they usually don't receive child support, then they can reapply for TANF, which in Colorado is $128 a month per child. Uncertified kin, that is the only support that they get. They are left, you are no longer in the system, we no longer will support you in any way whatsoever. So that is the difference between certified and uncertified. And those children in turn live in poverty. Over 50, like I was saying, there are 2.7 million children being raised by grandparents or other kin in the United States. There's something I can't even begin to tell you how many in Colorado. Those are grandparents that are non-certified, do not have involvement with the child welfare system that are being raised saving tax dollars, millions of dollars by not paying any kind of stipend for them to raise those children. 50% of those grandparents are single grandmothers living on 
a minimal social security. As you know, women make less money than men. Most women were during their lifetime were stay at home moms. So they didn't put into social security like the, the men do. So most of our grandmothers who are single grandmothers have an income anywhere from 800 to 900, 800 to $1,000 a month. The $128 a month for stipend for TANF and that's it. They wind up living on housing assistance, food stamps, but they make just a hair over so they don't make enough, so they make too much money to get any kind of food stamp. So children wind up living in poverty. Some of our schools here in Larimer County will tell you 50% of their children are being raised by grandparents who are not supported through the child welfare system. That is sad. I had no idea. I knew that Ken families had the possible option of TANF. I never knew how low TANF is. Never. What about um, WIC? Do they qualify for WIC? Oh, absolutely. Okay. But yeah, still. Wow. So you are not certified, Gail? No, I never was certified. And because I couldn't get the support I needed, I found it easier for me to adopt him. And the reason was, is because I'm disabled and he's disabled, he can now collect social security off of my income. Now here's okay. the ironic thing. I never got TANF the whole 13 years I was raising him. His social security, because he's disabled, is $128 a month. Oh my gosh. So when you adopted him, it wasn't through child welfare. So there was no subsidy no. negotiation. No. And because he's disabled, we didn't get the, there's two types of tax credits. If you adopt a child, you get a tax credit for your expenses. Yes. Adopt a child through the child welfare system and that is disabled, you get a tax credit of $14,000 to apply towards your future tax. If you do not adopt the child welfare system, that's out the window. My husband and I are, and 90% of our other grandparents are relying on their retirement income to raise these children. What services does Grand Families Coalition offer and what other agencies are providing services in this arena? Um, in the Denver area, Catholic Charities is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, Catholic Charities and I up in Larimer County, we provide support groups, social groups. We have a peer support, as Tony mentioned, that peer support. Those with lived experience for children, for bio parents, for grandparents, that peer support is 100% needed. And so Grand Family Coalition provides that. Um, we get grant funding sometimes. We work through um, realities for children. 
where I, I was listening to you at the very beginning talking about all the resources that you give for foster parents. Oh my gosh, that is so phenomenal because we don't get that. Um, here in Larimer County, we do because they have me, but most of the other cities and states don't even have a support group. Most of the other cities don't have um, any kind of resources. We take on these children at a moment's notice. We're just living our life and we get a phone call that says, hey, we got your grandchild. Would you like to come and take them at a moment's notice? So we take them and sometimes we don't have a bed. We don't have dressers. We don't have a bedroom. We, we don't have what we need. And so we have to scramble. So um, here in Larimer County, we have um, uh, Realities for Children, which has what they call a kind connect. So we can um, ask for those kind of things to be donated to us. I think that Catholic Charities also does the same thing. Um, I get a lot of reports from people in Colorado Springs that there's nothing, absolutely nothing. I'm hoping Lindsay can tell us a little bit about Families First so we can start learning about what that's going to look like. Lindsay, do you mind kind of explaining first off what Families First is and kind of what your role and the role of the implementation team? Because are all of you on the implementation team for Colorado? Okay. I think I'm the only one who's a voting member of the implementation team. I'm a voting member too. And so is Tony. Yeah, we all are. Yeah. Good. Super. Sorry, thank you. So I missed Renee. I'm so sorry. I missed the having a child care problem. Um, the the um the initial question. So family first. If you could kind of explain what it is, um, what it's gonna look like, where it is now, and um yeah, let's start there. What it is and kind of how it's looking, the direction it's taking child welfare in, in Colorado and the nation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a perfect, con I mean, Gail and Tony and Makita could, could explain this as well. And they've actually participated. I think Makita, you and I may, might've joined at the same time. I'm not a voting member, but Gail and, and Tony have been involved for, for over a year now <laughs> in the implementation team. So, um, and I think really good context um, from what Gail just said about um, the 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 what kin families um, face every day and and how they um, have such a lack of support <laughs> and that it really is just out out of nowhere they get a call and they haven't like foster families been trained had had cribs ready had clothes ready had all in the, all the things that we we do as foster parents to prepare. Um, have they may they you know may not know like as foster parents we all think about trauma all the time we are trained in it before we start um, and we still have to learn how to, to care for the kids in our care that are dealing with trauma in different ways and Gail and I talk about this a lot so anyway sorry I'm on a tangent but just that's I think that's a really good um, place to start with family first so it's uh, federal legislation that the states are now in the process of um, coming up with an implementation plan. So when we talk about implementation team, it's a team of professionals in child welfare that are, are figuring out the way to implement the federal law. And the idea around the federal law was really to, how do we shift the child welfare system? Uh, um, how do we prevent 
kids from entering into care? How do we provide families with the right support? You know, we heard so much from Gail and Tony and Makita about, um, you know, how so many of our fam families struggle with substance use. And that is often a reason why kids enter into care. We all know that as foster parents. So how do we provide families with the right treatment, mental health treatment, drug treatment, all of those things so that kids don't have to enter into the system and we can keep kids in families. And, you know, I think as foster parents, we all know and see when prevention services fail, when you're in the process and how that's just so unfair to families um, that, that aren't getting the right support and then reunification fails. Um, so that's what the goal of the legislation is to do that, is to to provide significant prevention services for families so that kids don't, don't have to enter into care. Um, and then also making sure that when we do have, when kids do enter into care, that we have a solid, what they call placement continuum. So um, that, kids, that kids are not going into group homes if uh, if they have if they need a higher level of care where they have significant trauma or significant um, disabilities that they're going into a res residential treatment facility that can that can help them, but that if they don't need that higher level of care that they're in a family based setting. And so, how do we ensure that we're retaining foster parents, um, equipping them to actually? Be able to take those kids in? Do we look at a professional foster parent? Do we look at therapeutic foster parents? All of those things. So that's the legislation. IT, implementation team, I-team is the, the group that comes up with all the recommendations um, on how to move that forward. Um, Gail, Tony, and Makita, all I have been overwhelmed at their um, engagement and bravery in speaking up when the policies being written don't reflect what is actually happening on the ground every day. <laughs> and I think that's where, and my interest in being a part of it too, is just how do we inform the process with people who are experiencing the system? And it's a hard, you know, all three I'm sure could talk about this. That's, it's a hard position to be in because all of the professionals in that group know the kind of descriptions of QRTPs and all these things that if you don't if you don't work in that world, um, it's it's can be daunting. But it's so important to have their voice every day in those meetings, saying, "Hey, wait a second, this doesn't make sense," or "Hey, this is how that would be implemented. That doesn't seem like it would work," or you know, all the things that that they bring to the discussion. So anyway, I'll stop. Um, but if, happy to answer any questions, and I know Gail, Tony, and Makita could as well. So will this benefit non-certified kin with more and better services? Um, most likely not, but uh, the Family First was um, enacted in February of 2018. By July of 2018, another act was passed supporting grandparents raising grandchildren. Um, that is a federal council that has pulled together family voices, grandparents raising grandchildren to come up with a uh, document for Congress about what the needs of grandparents are recognizing how many are uncertified. So there will be some other things enacted that are going to help that. There is Generations United in Washington DC 
has a, an organization called Grand Voice. I sit on that council. There is a um, representative for each state in the nation, as well as um, 10 Native, um, Native American tribes are also represented. And that act, I think, will bring some change, but I think it's going to be very slow. Tony, does it have what families of origin need to succeed? No, it doesn't. Um, it's it's a step forward, um, but no, it, it is still lacking so much. I mean, there's still so many things that need to be done, you know, um, but at least now, at least now I feel like they're listening. You know, they're hearing that families matter and that we can't just be talking about um, saving the children when we look at um, children either being th that are alienated from their families and wind up going back and looking for their families later. Um, we, we have to really look at helping the family and supporting the families to get healthy, um, you know, especially with, with addiction and with mental health. Um, it is a family disease. It doesn't just yes. affect the person that's suffering from it. And but it's generational. Absolutely. You know, when I think back to our little ones, bio mom, I think what else could, what could we have done? What could we have done? Or what could she have been provided? And sometimes I just feel overwhelmed because I think I, I, I can't think of what could have been provided that could have helped her succeed because she was fighting generations of foster care of trauma and addiction and mental health. So how is that all supposed to be tied up with a bow in six months? Um, I think that you hit a really good point. Um, the thing of it is, it isn't always generational. Sometimes it starts somewhere. But I also think that the mental health issue is the biggest thing. We've got to support the families, the, the, the biological parent to stop the cycle. And if we aren't stopping it with the biological parent, at least stop it with the child. But they have to recognize who their family was before they can make the step forward to stop that cycle. Makita, you were going to say something, right? Sorry, I was reading something in the chat too. So I, I was, and I'm happy to like chat offline about that question in the chat. I think it was from Courtney or we can chat about it. But um, I, I think that like, I love what Gail and Tony said about families first. The one thing that I find, um, Gail was super sweet about like coaching me into this idea that I did not want to do because my first thing to her was like, if I say anything, are they going to hear me or am I wasting my breath? Is it just like hot air blowing up a balloon? Um, and so she, she told me they would, and I sat back very quietly and, and just like really soaked in. Um, what I think of families first is, is lacking. And I agree with Tony, it's not setting up our kin for success, but to be frank, I don't think it's setting up our youth for success. I had a very, very, very strong battle with DCW, um, about a assessment that they were doing that I just was not happy with because they forgot to take into account the youth. 
So we're all having these conversations about what we can do. And I think that the one thing that where it starts is that self-advocacy and teaching these youth how to advocate for themselves. There's an age appropriate level, right? To them getting to know information, except for the fact that like, the, what, how, who are we to judge what that age appropriate level is? Um, I get that they can't sign a letter. I get that they can't read a letter, but if I were seven or if I at 15, if I could look back into a file and say, hey, they did, even though like I didn't understand, they did at least think enough of me to let me know that this is what they were doing with my life. Um, Families First is really lacking that. And so I spent quite a bit of time um, kind of pushing that agenda of, well, what about the youth voice? How, what are we going to do to to talk to them and to hear them and to involve them um, in the decision making process that surrounds their life? And so um, I also and Gail and Tony, you're, even Lindsay, you guys correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think families first um, is as focused on the foster family perspective as it is on the qualified residential treatment treatment centers. And so I want that to be something that I think that's where I have struggled with families first as well is that. Yes, we do not want uh, children placed um, in a facility if they can be in a home, but I have heard a little bit about how we're going to continue to push the home perspective, whether it's therapeutic foster care, foster care, kin, I don't hear that. And I think that ultimately that's where Families First is lacking. So the fo like all of us sitting on here, I think we are kind of at that bottom piece of what they're focused on. It's a lot of like, how do we spend these dollars? That the federal government is giving us and the way the qualified way to spend these dollars is these big treatment centers um and and so that goes into a no, whole nother ball game right of like are we sending these kids back down to juvenile justice pathway are we you know so um but yeah i think families first has a lot of work to do um and i am not 100 percent bought in i'm not gonna lie so I agree, Makita, and this has been my struggle sitting on there. I came in at the very beginning of the implementation team, and I sat there for a year, and I will tell you, I felt the same way, Makita. It was like, is this really going to work? I, I, I'm just not sure that this is really going to happen. But okay, because I need to be here so I can hear what's going on. I need to be here so I can give my voice. But I, after a year, I said, excuse me, I, you see me, I cannot represent a, a woman of color, a child of color. I, what are you asking me to do? I don't know. I can't resent, I can maybe represent a parent because I have my, my daughter but I don't know what it's like to go through the foster system. My child didn't go to the foster system. Why am I the only person on this team? It took me a year to get Tony and Makita. It took me a year and I think that was wrong. And now it's been, uh, it's almost been a year that we have a constituent engagement group and it's, it's still bureaucracy. There's nothing going on. So I'm on camera and this is being recorded and I'm going to catch slack. <laughs> no, you won't. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I for our, our job, my job, or what I consider, consider my job from the from foster source is to provide the foster parent perspective, right? And that's kind of, Lindsay, what you're doing on that implementation team. And for from a foster parent's perspective, 
my view of Families First is that, first of all, absolutely lots more services on, on the front end. I've seen many, many cases where the child did not need to be removed. Uh, you know, and enough services in advance, we could have avoided the traumatization of the removal. And the removal is a traumatization. It's a major traumatization. So if we could have saved that traumatization, don't remove. Now, there will always be a need for foster care. So those kids who come into foster care then, I think, and, and those stepping down from congregate or residential care will need a higher level of care. They will need foster parents better trained in trauma. And I, I mentioned at the beginning of the, of the panel, our, our newest programming for these mental health sessions for foster parents, they will need that there is a level of secondary trauma that comes with caregiving for all of us. Um, and that I guess that's kind of where our focus will be when when families first is implemented. But this is really, really interesting to hear your perspectives and hear that you have concerns too. I think also the, um, so this is a good kind of lesson, or I would encourage all the foster parents that are listening in today, that you're hearing the four of us kind of working really hard to, to elevate that voice, that constituent voice in these discussions. And we would love you to join us. <laughs> um, you see, you see, you know, the, the impact of, of policies that are not informed by people experiencing um, this day to day. And so you, your voice matters um, and it's really important. There's plenty of ways we could plug you guys in <laughs> um, to, to these discussions. And, and I think, so we could use you and we could use you in a, as a, as a team player, as the, as I'm sure you all are a, an advocate for these families, um, for reunification, for the children, and how do we, how do we do that as a team? How do we work? I think what I valued so much is, is to be able to hear all Gail, Tony, Makita's perspective. That makes me a better foster parent. It makes me a better advocate. Um, and that we're all on the same team. Like we, we, if we view it like that, this is, we will be more successful. Um, and I think it's just so important to keep elevating that voice. And, you know, we just would love your, love your help. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. And Lindsay, do you mind sharing, we mentioned at the beginning of, of the panel that Foster Source is the home to the Colorado chapter of CHAMPS. CHAMPS is a national initiative. Um, it's at fosteringchamps.org if you're interested in learning more. Lindsay, will you explain a little bit real quickly which three counties you're currently working with and what you're doing with those counties? Yeah, yeah. And I think, Makita, were you going to hop in there really quickly before I go on CHAMPS? I was. I also think that if you have foster children, that their voices are valuable too. Um, and so I don't want it to just be us adults because I'm no longer living it either. They are. And so their voices are just as valuable as those of us with lived experience for me in the past. So I just like, would love to elevate that. And especially these teenagers um, would love to talk them through how to fight that good fight. Love that. Yeah. So yeah, so Champs really came out of this, my experience of feeling like, how do we in 
inform public policy with people that are that are living it. And so, um, you know, I, I, so, so we launched in May and it's a, it's as Renee said, housed at, um, at Foster Source. And we, we, I work on the state level in these different ways that we've talked about. And then also um, within three pilot counties. So Larimer, Adams and Denver. And the, the, we, some of the folks on this call might, uh, might have gotten a survey from us. Um, the, we start with surveying foster and kin families, getting a sense of what their needs are, what their experience is. Um, that doesn't happen, hasn't happened in any of these counties that getting that feedback from, uh, from certified families. Um, we did not do non-certified families because all three counties are engaged in a pilot project with kinship, um, uh, with kinship families, and so we didn't want to um, mess with that that pilot project. So that's why we didn't do surveying of, of non-certified kin. Um, but we are working on non-certified kin programming as well. But the so we do do the survey, then we give the county the data and say, hey, these are the areas that you need to work on. And then we take the next step and say, okay, what are the things that we could do to retain these foster parents to support them um, in ways that that enable them to be better caregivers for their youth. And, and um, we have, you know, uh, closed the gap of the need for placement and the amount of parents we have for those placements. So, um, so, so that's, that's kind of the program. The, what that looks like is direct supports for certified families and non-certified families. So either peer-to-peer -peer interaction or peer-to-peer um, -peer support, mentor, uh, mentorship, um, mental health therapy that Foster Source is providing. Um, and then also, so that's kind of one track. And the other track is really how do we break down some of these cultural barriers and in the system? And how do we, um, you know, as, as so many of the folks on this call probably could attest to, how do we be a better, um, strengthen that partnership between the department and, and families um, so that we can actually work together. Uh, so we're doing some trainings. Um, we're also really focusing on that foster birth parent relationship. Um, one thing I would encourage everyone um, to walk away with from this conversation is meet bio parents right away. <laughs> Unless there is a safety concern, um, I would say, and you know, chime in here guys, if you feel differently or have anything else to say about this too, but I just feel like, that sets the relationship up for success. It it is it is as Gail said, it's messy, it's complicated, it's all those things. But meet your your the kids in your care, their their family if you can as quickly as possible. Encourage that, ask for it. Um, so that's we're starting there. How do we re do icebreakers well? Those kinds of things. Um, and the hope is that it would be a statewide initiative that we would we would be able to build out the piece that Makita is talking about that's missing from Family First that what is gonna happen in, within the foster care system? How do we create family-based settings, whether that's kin or foster that work, that help? It, and we know obviously so many of those work, but there's just, it's a failed system right now and how do we fix it? I would like to chime in a little bit about making sure that foster parents um, connect with the parent. I think that is very important. But, and, and this is going to sound really awful, but I, it needs to be said. I have many, many grandparents who come to us and say that my grandchild was placed with a foster family with the intent that they are going to adopt. And now all of a sudden, I have no way 
of getting my grandchild back or even having a relationship with my grandchild because the child welfare system made it that way. Connecting with those grandparents, please don't go into this with instantly, I am going to adopt a child because those children have a family and you're cutting them short of knowing who their family is. So don't only, and it, and it won't happen every time. It isn't always safe with every parent. It isn't always safe with every grandparent. Sometimes it takes time to find that grandparent that's in four or five states away. Yeah. Sometimes those grandparents don't even know they have a grandchild out there. Yeah. There was a question, Gail, to this um, specifically. What can a family member do if a child is in foster care and the family member is trying to get them? They want to keep the kids in the family and they've been fighting the county since the day they came into care. Someone's asking, what are their options? Not many because we as a state, as um, child welfare, have got it in our minds that as quickly as we place these children, the better. Finding permanency immediately is better. And, and there is a financial gain to that. The sooner we find a permanent placement for these children, it takes the cost off of the county. It doesn't do any benefit to those children whatsoever. Permanency is is a great thing. I think we should work really hard to get permanency of some kind. But once those children are placed with a foster parent or in the foster system, coming in is almost impossible. You can become an intervener in the case. You can say why you would like to have that child. But once that child is placed, they pretty much stick with it. And uh, it's a challenge. And I think that's part of the reason that many of our grandparents do not get involved with the child welfare system because they know that those children will be taken away from them, which is really sad because they could have support in other ways. Um, better, an, a, a better alternative even and still be connected. But no, there isn't, once the child welfare system is involved, if you are not identified as the kinship care provider, it's almost impossible. I would like to just kind of, I think that that's a great perspective, Gail, but I, what I want to, I guess, add to that is that there, it's hard, but there are ways. And so when I did work for Arapahoe County, one of the things that we, now granted this was four years ago, one of the things that my um, attorney and I really made sure that we pushed our caseworkers on was finding a list of kin um, so that we can make the caseworkers start to investigate that too. So that was part of our process of like really trying to get, get that in place. Like Gail said, they can um, go as an intervener, um, you know, file into the case as an intervener. But I would push if you know of or if you are one, there's just um, you fight. You have to fight. It just it you can do procedural all you want. But like, really, I I told someone the other day um, at the Department of um, Human Services, I was like, if my voice has to get louder, it will. 
And so that's a perspective that I think that needs to be taken, but there are ways. And I will say that some of the trainings that I have seen and heard about is really trying to expand the judicial system too, to open up and start asking those questions too about kin and finding D the DNN cases, right, are six months. You have, if you're under six, you have six months to try and figure out permanency. So there is a push to rush that. Um, but in, in a little bit of their defense, I know that they are trying to shift that mindset um, from the judicial all the way down to the caseworkers. It definitely is a mind shift. It definitely is. Um, when I started this 13 years ago, Ken weren't even considered. Um, some counties would, some counties wouldn't. And yes, it definitely is shifting to, and family first is saying kin first. It's interesting, Gail, um, that, so I totally hear you. And I think that the, like the policy change is that like better family finding services that can happen quickly. And I think there's some uh, organizations that are like starting to build out tools that caseworkers can use to find family quickly. Um, and I do think there's, it goes to that, the very hard dynamic of um, a foster parent who is open to adopting um, and also remaining a fierce advocate for reunification. And I think that that's, um, that you, I believe you can hold those two things in your, in your head. Um, I think it's complicated. And especially when you feel like the, um, the system is not taking into consideration the, the, the kid, and I think that's where oftentimes foster parents feel like, so I, I hear stories often, which just the opposite of you, Gail, where their kids have been placed in foster care. And then like a year later, they hear about a grandma and kid is moved. And it's not a, it's not moved. It's, and we just talked about this in Denver County. It's not, the kid's not moved in a therapeutic way. They're just moved. And it's like, you've been with this family for a year. Yeah. That's and, what we hear a lot. Yeah. Yeah. For, how, yeah. How do we, again, going back to that, like what, how do we do that therapeutically if that's what's going to happen? And, and therapeutically, I mean, just like making sure that we're talking, this is kids have built a bond with that, that those foster parents and how do we, if it's the right thing to move them, how do we make sure that that's done well and not another re-traumatized um, situation? And so I think that's where it's, um, I just think, gosh, we need to do better with family finding service. And I don't know, Gail and Tony, I don't know if you guys hear from, from uh, families about this too, but I feel like oftentimes it's the caseworker is like pleading with kin that don't. And I, I feel like Tony, it's really brave of you to have said like, I can't take your, your granddaughter. I won't be successful with these other kids. And I have to pretend that's like incredibly brave and so hard and I think that I've seen where caseworkers push too hard with kin and then then it's it fails and it's and I just now it just sounds like I'm complaining about everything <laughs> but I feel like it's that it's yeah there's just like so many points of entry that that seem like we have to fix this um so anyway just get to give the foster parent perspective there yeah and, and I agree with you Lindsay and and as you said a little while ago, the more we bring our voices together and hear the stories and elevate, we're going to do better. There are still families falling through the cracks. And the more we come together, the closer those cracks get healed. So I, 
I do hear stories on both sides all the time. And um, good stories, bad stories, depends on the case, depends on the county, depends on a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, my experience has been that that six month DNN um, deadline is is rarely met in in my experience. Um, it's well over a year, and oh, oh, Lindsay's right. We do hear from a lot of foster parents where you know their distraught child has been with them for eighteen months. There's been no contact, no no visits, no nothing. TPR is scheduled, and then you know, in a state far, far away, there's a possible uncle, you know, and I think that's, that's the struggle. Well, you know, what, Tony, walk us through how that could be softer than the way it happens now. Cause sometimes it's like, okay, and we've scheduled a flight. It's Saturday, you know, we really should be. And I can't say this enough looking to Ken first. Um, my, my granddaughter would not have spent near as much time in foster care had they looked to Ken. I had a cousin who wanted my grandbaby and he actually, um, <clears throat> had found out that she was in foster care, not through human services because they didn't do their due diligence. Um, he is actually a guard at the prison. And um, my daughter had wrote a letter to a man that was in the prison that he happened to be working at. And um, <clears throat> they had put two and two together and figured out, oh, you know, you know this person? Well, that's my cousin. And my cousin and his wife, they, <clears throat> they remind me of the Little House on the Prairie family. They, um, they live out east in Colorado. They live on a farm, they're farmers. Um, my cousin's wife is a stay-at-home mom. They're devout Catholics. They now have seven children. When they went in to do the home study with them, they told them that they had too many kids and that they could not take my grandbaby because they had too many kids. Um, my cousin fought and fought and continued to go to court. And um, the more that I supported my cousin and getting my granddaughter, um, they took her away from me. And I cannot say enough the importance of looking to Ken so that we don't have to have this. My granddaughter was in, and don't quote me on this, but I want to say in the over 700 days that she was in foster care, she was probably in six different homes. Um, all too often people um, view the, because she's this beautiful little girl, and um, she was told by the caseworker, before she went into each placement with the possible adoption um, that she had significant trauma and had suffered significant neglect. My grandbaby was then treated like a pet. People would take her in and realize that she was too difficult for them. You know, she was two years old and to get her anger out, she was bashing her little face into an oven door because she did not know, because my daughter did not know. You know, my daughter thought, which is exactly how I raised her at a young age. If you scream at me, I'm going to scream at you because we don't understand mental health and nobody's teaching us. So this is what my daughter would do with my grandbaby. My grandbaby would scream at her. My daughter would scream back and tell her, don't scream at me. My grandbaby, the way that she got her anxiety out and her anxiousness was by self-harm at such a little age. And she went from home to home to home. And so then of course she had attachment issues. 
Well, I wonder why she has attachment issues when she has been in six homes in three years. We have got to stop treating children like they are pets. We have got to treat them like they are people, which is why, and I can't say this enough, and I know that Gail can, can um, get behind me on this. You know, when I talk about my grandson, he is a hard child. I have spent many hours crying over mm -hmm. this kid because I don't know how to fix him or support him. And my mom always tells me that I have him because I'm like, oh my gosh, why am I doing this? And my mom says, because you're the only one that can. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, really? Because I don't feel like I can. Yeah. Yeah. Family doesn't give up which is why we need to support them. And I'm not, you know, we do have a need for foster care. And I have met many, many wonderful foster parents out there who have supported the Kin family, who even, um, you know, have helped with, with the reunification with the Kin family. And then these foster parents, and as I like to call them, and, and we're trying to move to nationally as resource parents rather than foster parents, how you can all become this family and how these foster resource parents can become a resource for the Kin family when the child goes back home. Yeah. Kids need family period. And what better people if they have to go into foster care than these lovely foster parents to be able to support these children when they do go back home. Go ahead, Gail. I saw you wanted to say something. Uh, I tell you, Tony, thank you. These children that experience trauma are difficult. And I know these foster families know that. But here's another scenario that um, this is a story that is currently going right now. Um, a child was born to a mother who was a meth addict. They took the child immediately from the mother at the hospital, placed that child with a foster parent who was a foster to adopt. They made it very clear they wanted to adopt. The um, father of the child was not listed on the birth certificate because grandmother did not put the father on the birth certificate. They put, she put the person she was living with the biological father was in prison. He found out she had a baby. And so he called his mother and said, mom, my child's in the foster system. So grandma got on the plane, went to the other state and said, I understand my child's in the foster system. Well, they said, well, your child is not listed as the birth parent. They had to jump through hoops to get through COVID, get him a, um, a test, paternity test, prove that he was the actual father. And I think we see a lot of this where the mother versus the father, prove that he was the biological father. And so the grandparents went down, had visitation with the foster parent. We want a relationship with this child, but because it was a baby, they wanted to place immediately because it was a baby. The foster parent was able to say, we can't have visitation anymore because you're going to take this child from me. Foster parents need to be a bridge to those families, not the ones who take those children away and rescue them. And I don't mean to sound harsh. I don't.
means that there are not foster parents who we need foster parents because we don't always have a good grandparent who's able to do it. We don't always have that, but it is not every case. I think that's a great perspective. I want to end this session just kind of coming back to that a little bit, Gail, and a little back to what Tony said about foster parents. This has been a big learning experience for us today. Um, we've had to be really vulnerable and listen to truths that make us a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I actually have a private message from um, an attendee saying this feels kind of like foster parent bashing. Um, and I foster parents do experience sometimes being villainized as the bad folks that just want to adopt and take all your kids away. And that's not, that's not where we're coming from in our hearts. I, pr I promise you that. Um, we, we really, I think everyone involved in a child's case loves the child. Um, and that's a good thing. Um, so I guess I'm saying I appreciate all of this and helping us learn to be better. While I also want to encourage the foster parents that that was not our intention. Um, yeah, does anybody want to jump in on there? I, I'm I apologize. I, I No, no, no need for any apologizing. Yeah, no, I, you know, I think that I think of so I work with teachers on a regular basis. We're in the middle of a pandemic, right? Nobody wants to go back to school. And I have to regularly remind these teachers that I work with that like, yeah, we're giving we're making it difficult for you right now. The world is making it difficult for you, but you're doing the Lord's work. And so I while my experience with foster parents was not great, um, I can also own I went into that situation with a different perspective. But I think that there are gaps to be bridged um, throughout the entire child welfare system. And sometimes what feels like bashing could really, it is really designed for you to start to see something from a different perspective. And so I, I'm not downplaying or I don't want to take away from, cause I can see that too. Um, but I think that, that there, there are situations where respondent parents have to sit and it's how it feels sit in a courtroom and it feels like parent bashing. Um, and there are situations where youth has to sit in a treatment uh, conversation that feels like youth bashing, but it also is like another way to like push the, push the needle to think a different, different way. And I want to say that I think that someone that is willing to open up their home to a child um, for whatever reason at any point in time is doing something amazing to make this world a better place. And so while there are two different perspectives, regardless of what your, what your situation is or how you're connected to your kids' bio parents or all of that, what you're doing every day is making this world a better place for one person who hopefully then will make this world a better place for someone else. And so um, I always like to look at it like, I hear you, but I know me. And so right. I like, that would be my piece of advice for you. And it doesn't, it's not an us versus them, right? Lindsay, what right. were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say, so um, to, to Tony's point about um, feeling like you're crying because you're like, how do I help this, this kid? And how do I help my grandson? I have felt that 
for my adopted kids. I mean, in their dealing with their trauma all the time, I know the foster parents on this call feel that and feel that um, love and devotion and commitment to kids with trauma who are struggling in ways that we can't help sometimes. And it, it breaks my heart that your granddaughter has has made those moves. And I think the, the, the foster parents, I can only assume the ones that are calling into this call are the foster parents that are committed because that's just that you would be interested in this conversation if you're committed to, um, to reunification and to support, to figuring out ways to support kids better. And so I think that um, I, I just go back to that idea that we are all on the same team, that we are all experiencing these really, really difficult um, things. And I, I so appreciate all the parents that are listening in. Um, I mean, to again, to be super vulnerable, the things that Gail and Tony and Makita say sometimes sting as a foster parent, you want to be like, oh gosh, that's, that's hard. Like that's hard to hear. And I think that I'm committed. And I think these women are committed to continuing to come back to the table and have those hard conversations because we're all on the same team and we want to find solutions um, so that none of us so that none of these families experience, continue to experience this. And so I just really, I appreciate the pan, uh, the person who said it feels like foster parent bashing. I think all of us want foster parents to feel supported and to, to, um, to feel thanked. I mean, it's, it's a hard job. Um, and so I think that, yeah, I just hope that, that people leave today feeling like, this is hard and we got to keep, we got to keep talking and we got to keep trying to figure out solutions as a team. And I would just like to piggyback a little bit on that. Um, you know, we all should be a team and, you know, I too, if I came across as crass or, um, you know, made anybody feel like we were bashing them. Um, but as Makita had said, you know, parents, and youth also feel that at times too. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes the things that sting us the most are the things that we need to open our eyes the most to. Um, and I really, you know, value being able to be a part of this so that we can share our perspective because all too often um, foster parents don't get to hear from us. They don't get to hear from the youth or from the parents or from the grandparents. You know, they get to hear from each other. And like I said, foster parents do serve a very important part on the team. And we all should be working together as a team and we should all be coming together as a team for what's best for the family. And again, I do apologize if I sounded like I was bashing because I was not. I don't blame the foster parents at all. I blame our system. Our system has put a wedge between all of us. And if it stings, it's because we need to do better at working together. We need to have better communication with each other. And so that's the only intent I have. It's not to, to bash anyone. No, no. And I absolutely agree. And this is how that, um, how we work through that is sitting in our own discomfort. 
foster care is a huge lesson in sitting our, in our own discomfort. And I'm so grateful to all of you for, for being vulnerable with us and sharing your truth with us and giving us grace as, as we all learn and learn how we can better support each other. Um, our, our Lindsay has popped back on. <laughs> Lindsay, there was one thing before you walk everyone through when we were talking earlier about, you know, having things decided for you. And it made me think of when you were, what was it? You were 17 or 18 and your caseworker was like, yeah, we're going to place you for adoption. Yeah. I looked at her and told her she was stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, point blank. That's what I said. I was like, I am screwed up. I am almost 18. Nobody wants me just emancipate me and save everybody the time and effort. Well, and you wanted to be with your mom. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ultimately, yeah, that's what I wanted. But somehow that wasn't part of the conversation. No, it yeah. quickly went there though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lindsay's going to walk us through um, getting your certificate today. <laughs> 